Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the British writer Simon Seabag Montefiore and the Norwegian writer Erika Fatlan talk about Montefiore's latest book, The Romanovs, 1613-1918. The conversation took place on March 3rd, 2017. things first. Good evening everyone and also good evening to those who were too slow to get tickets to sit here and are watching us on screen uh, in Amalia Scrum. So tonight the main topic of the evening will be this, uh, the last book. So a very warm welcome to uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore. Welcome to Oslo. Thank you. So, if you haven't read this book yet, you do know what to do afterwards. Uh, For me, uh, I think, honestly, uh, this is one of the most fascinating books I have ever read. It's a captivating journey through 300 years of history and 20 Tsars, and all seen from the palaces, uh, from the Tsarist palaces and from their bedrooms. And and this takes us to the first question, Um, because you have written about Russia before. You have written two books about one person, Stalin, and you have written one not very slim book about Catherine the Great and Potemkin. And this book isn't very slim either, but as I said, it encompasses 300 years and and 20 Tsars. So why, why just one book? Well, we can always cut it in two. And, um, but you know what? I mean, one of the things... Um, when, I, when, I wrote, when, I, when I was looking into this subject, um, I really wanted to find a history of the entire dynasty and the entire idea of autoc- and Russia's addiction to autocracy and that carried this dynasty through right from the beginning, from Ivan the Terrible right up to the terrible slaughter and catastrophe of the downfall. And I wanted a book that told everything, you know, the foreign policy, the domestic policy, the personal, the amorous, um, the cultural, all in one narrative. And I was sure that there would be a book, because after all, you know, haven't we already said so many times, you know, there are so many books on the Romanovs, why have you written another one? And in fact, there are many books on Nicholas and Alexandra, and there are many books on Catherine the Great and Peter the Great, but there are no books that carry the whole dynasty through um, from beginning to the end in one narrative. And, of course, I had this clever idea because I wanted to read it myself. Um, and Benjamin Disraeli, who's one of my great heroes, the British Prime Minister, who um, appears in this book and in Jerusalem, you might remember, um, he always said, when I want to read a book, I write it. And so, um, with much reverence to Benjamin Disraeli, um, I very much do the same, and that's why I wrote this. But also, I really wanted at this time um, to explain what, you know, the nature of Russia today. And in many ways, this is a book about Russia in 2017 as well. Um, there's a, there's a, at the end, I, go, I look at the Russian rulers right up to Putin and, and, and to Trump, in the paperback, in which, which we've updated. And really, I wanted to explain... Um, I wanted to have great fun in the process. I wanted to enjoy the ride, because really, I write, I write these books in a way that I want to read. And so when people say there's too much sex and violence um, in them, <laughs> well, that's what I like to read about. But also, um, this, this has a very serious purpose, which is to study the phenomenon of Russian statehood, Russian nationhood, Russian Tsardom, and the addiction to autocracy. So you can read it as a study of power, or you can just read it as a saga of a family. We will get back to Putin and Trump in a minute, but let's just dwell with the Tsars for a moment. Um, 
I mean, we all, we have all learned about Russian history at school, and I personally was, at least before I read this book, I was a great admirer of Peter the Great, uh, who modernized... Are you still an admirer after reading the book? Well, um, now it's slightly more ambivalent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, that, that was my point now, that... Uh, well, he, he was a great modernizer. He founded St. Petersburg. He was a truly uh, admirable man and filled with energy. And there is really no... Uh, you have to look along uh, in the history to find someone like Peter the Great. But after reading the book, uh, there are some disturbing images in my head now uh, concerning <laughs> Peter the Great, especially the one where he had his former mistress... Um, killed, beheaded, and then uh, he picks up the head of his former mistress and he starts giving the audience a lecture of, about anatomy. Yes. And then after the lecture, he kisses her bloody lips and uh, he has her, his, her head uh, balsamated and he keeps, his, keeps it in his cabinet. Um, and there are so many disturbing details like this in the book. Mm. And I wonder, for you, uh, was there anything that was shocking to you when you read the book and that changed your view of any of the Tsars you're writing about? Well, I mean, just to start with Peter the Great, I mean, everything about Peter the Great is exceptional. I mean, he is an most extraordinary character. I mean, he's six foot seven, first of all. Um, but what you don't see from the portraits is, you know, he suffers from fits. He's constantly twitching, um, and his, his face is flickering, and you know, and he, so he was absolutely terrifying in person. Um, everything about him is exceptional. I mean, his talents are are extraordinary. I mean, he is the ultimate czar, and every czar after him wants to emulate him. You know, to be a czar was an impossible job, and it was even more impossible after the Peter the Great had raised the level so high. But having said that. He was an absolute tyrant. He was half monster, half hero. He had some of the, to be on the serious side, he had the three kind of, the three essentials for greatness in a politician. He knew what he wanted to do clearly. He had the acumen to actually get it done and know how to do it. And he had the resources to, do it, to, to get it done too, he, which is, the last is just luck. But the first two are about the gifts of a, of, a, of a politician, and he had all three. But to do so, he was absolutely ruthless and merciless. And even his closest, as I explained in the book, even his son and his, many of his closest entourage plotted against him to have him overthrown, even, even though they knew that the, that, you know, the, the costs of being caught were terrible torture and downfall. But he was such a despot. So... As we've often failed to realize in Russian history, um, that yes, he was a modernizer, a visionary, a reformer. But what does that mean in Russia? It doesn't mean that he's really a liberal, he's a liberal and a democrat. On the contrary, it means that basically with Peter the Great, he wanted to get Western military technology. And in those days, that meant ships and cannons. And he wanted to get these things for Russia to make Russia a great power and to use against the West, in effect. I mean, you know, first of all, against Sweden, but you know, ultimately to make Russia a great power in Central and Western Europe as well. And so that's why he went to Holland on his great embassy. And you've got to realize how bizarre this is. You know, he comes to power as Tsar, and he declares, the Tsar knows nothing. The Tsar will become a student. And so he goes off to Holland, which is then the sort of high-tech center of Europe, and he studies how to make ships how to, how to you know, build cannons. And with Peter the Great, everything, everything is to do with putting things together, taking them apart, making them work. And that includes cannons and ships, but also human bodies. So he's very fascinated. You know, when he, when he, and, and another thing that he understands, and which also Vladimir Putin understands, um, is that if you're a Russian czar, you have to take a vigorous interest in your own security. And that is a vigorous interest of perpetual vigilance backed by the threat and reality of violence at all times. Because in a system without any rules, there are no rules to protect the ruler either. Even though the ruler has absolute power, there's no protection for them either. 
And for this reason, and he understood this. So when the Streltsy rebelled, Peter the Great set up a row in huts of about 15 torture chambers. And he just walked along from one to the other, torturing them one by one um, to get the information he wanted. He then took part in their execution. And he was always fascinated by the fact that when you executed someone, they stayed sitting up for several seconds afterwards. And he, would, he, he was very fascinated. He talked about that a lot. So when he went to Holland, one of the things he did was to attend the dissections of human bodies. And he was fascinated by that. And he got down and went to the professor, who was the doctor who was dissecting them on stage. And he said, can I bite the body? I want to feel how it feels between the flesh, between the teeth. So he bit the body. And then he made his entire entourage bite the bodies too. And after that, he said, what are those? And the professor said, these are our latest surgical tools and you know, um, scalpels and knives. And he said, I want to buy a set of those. And he was very excited to have them. And he then, he then noticed that one of his entourage was grumbling about a sore toe. And so he called them over and he said, I've just bought this new, this new lot of mili- um, medical equipment. He cut off the toe. And then another one had a bad tooth. He pulled out the tooth himself. And after that, if you had any aches and pains or any illnesses at all and you were in his entourage, you absolutely did not mention it in front of the emperor. (laughs) So this might not be the best book to enjoy reading while eating your breakfast. Um, So Peter the Great, he's probably the best known of the 20 czars. Um, Are there any of the lesser known czars that you discovered and became... Phone, found of while uh, well, writing this book. Well, I mean, a lot of the um, a lot of the nineteenth uh, century czars um, are, are fascinating and are lesser known because we all know about kind of the two greats. And by the way, you know what? You know, it's rather amazing there were two geniuses in this family because um, how many most families have none at all. So, <laughs> so it's and in fact, you know, one of the th- points I should make is that you know we often think of the Romanovs as a cursed dynasty. And we often talk about that as, you know, the the, the curse of the Romanovs. In fact, they were the most successful dynasty in modern times. And the empire was expanding right up into the 1890s, until 1904, in fact. Another interesting thing is if, if Nicholas II had only held on for another, for another, you know, 18 months or something, he would have been on the winning side in World War I and Russia would have received the most enormous territorial um, additions. The empire would have been increased in size. They would, have re- they would have received swathes of the Ottoman Empire in Europe, in Asia, in Anatolia, in bits of Iraq, Jerusalem, Istanbul. So history, which we think of as so predefined in these 1917 as such a clear date, history, nothing is inevitable, you know, and... I think that, to go back to your question, the most fascinating and underestimated czars are the two Alexanders, the first two Alexanders. Alexander I, who, because of, because partly because of Napoleon's comments and partly because of his appearance in War and Peace, Tolstoy's novel, Alexander I is regarded as a weakling, um, a damaged person, a man without character, without backbone, um, in fact, Alexander I is a complex and fascinating character. First of all, he looked marvellous. He was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, barrel-chested, six-foot-one. Um, he was so good-looking and so glamorous that women literally threw themselves at him like a rock star. And he often had to lock, put guards outside his doors to stop women breaking in and literally getting into his bed and offering themselves to him when he was asleep. So... You know, he was, he, was, he was the most handsome. Of course, when he actually liberated Europe, he was even more attractive to women. So you can see why, after that, he became, he became an ascetic and gave up physical things altogether after about 15 or 16 years of kind of perpetual um, excess, physical excess, sensual excess. But the interesting thing about him was, first of all, he played a role in the murder of his own father, which is a very Romanov thing to do, by the way, because this is a family, as we were saying, who where, um, where, where, you know, where, where fathers torture their sons to death and, and where sons have their fathers killed. And so he waited downstairs when his father was being overthrown 
the deal was that he would back the, the, the he, he backed the the the, um, the plot, providing his father was left alive. But the moment they got into the bedroom of Emperor Paul, his father, the conspirators who hated him passionately beat him to death savagely. When he was dead, they stomped on his head with his boots. And then they had to go downstairs and say um, to Alexander, the sac- Alexander, you know, um, it's over, we've done it, your majesty. And when they said your majesty, that he realised his father had been murdered just upstairs on his agree- with his agreement. So, of course, he never recovered from this agonising um, realisation, which is almost mythical, isn't it? It's almost like something out of Greek myth. Um, he also, when he became Tsar, was extremely arrogant and tried to command his armies against Napoleon Bonaparte, the greatest soldier-statesman of modern times, the greatest genius of the battlefield. And he was roundly humiliated and defeated. But after the burning of Moscow and the invasion and the retreat from Moscow, Alexander survived, put together the coalition that fought its way all the way from Moscow to Paris in 1814, overthrew Napoleon, and then became the liberator of Europe. So this was the high watermark of the Romanov dynasty, the greatest moment in Russian history. You remember when um, the American ambassador said to Stalin, congratulations, Marshal Stalin, you have taken Berlin. And Stalin, quick as a flash, said, yes, but Alexander I took Paris. So, so Stalin always compared himself to historic, the other historic, uh, historical figures. So Alexander I is a hugely underestimated character. And, um, and I hope I, in some, to some extent, rehabilitate him. But the other fascinating one is Alexander II, but maybe we'll mm-hmm. come to him in a minute. Well, we can take him now since we are already started with the Alexanders. Yes, I mean, Alexander II, almost a forgotten figure now, but Alexander II was the, was the Tsar who emancipated, liberated the serfs, freed the slaves of Russia, almost at exactly the same time as President Lincoln, with whom he was in correspondence, by the way, and with whom he was an ally, was liberating the slaves of, of America. Now, the emancipation of serfdom was the most complicated, challenging, terrifying, and dangerous moment of Tsardom so far, because it threatened the very essence of the, of the Romanov contract with the nobles, with the land, with the serfs. He negotiated it over two or three years with great skill and patience, and for that he deserves the, um, the admiration of history. He also brought in reforms, jury trials, um, uh, local elected assemblies. And at the end of his life, he was planning to bring in an elected assembly that would have changed Russian history forever. It was one of those moments that could have... One of those key moments. Um, But he was assassinated that day, that very day. And... um, But another fascinating thing about him was... He was by far the most genial, charming, endearing, and kind of the Romanovs. Most of them were pretty rough, tough, um, arrogant characters, unsurprisingly. But he wasn't. He was also extremely good-looking. And one of the interesting things about him is his correspondence, his love letters. Now, this correspondence, which has not really been used much by historians, for reasons we can talk about later if we have time, I'm sure we won't, the rate I answer these questions. The correspondence is the most erotic, yes, erotic correspondence ever written by a politician of any nation and in any era, including our own, by the way. Um, it, is, it is quite shocking, to even to us, to read. Um, they had... He had his mistress was called Katya Dolgorukaya, and she was a princess, a penniless princess, whom he met when he was about forty, and she was um, eighteen, and they fell passionately in love. And more than that, they recognised in each other, as people do, a sort of animal sexuality, which not everybody has, but they which, both did. And which lasted and lasted. Which lasted for twenty over tw- twenty-five years, twenty twenty-five years. Partly the reason was that they could never really 
be properly together. And so they never lost that sort of that burning passion of the illicit affair, even when they were actually married at the end of, the end of his life. She was, she was delightful, highly intelligent, liberal, a great reader, and unambitious for herself. And they had children together. The correspondence is full of the most crazy um, sexual indulgence that you could have. They, they loved sex. They wrote about it endlessly. They never thought these letters would ever be read by anybody, by the way. Um, and they had code names for everything. So his, his was called... His, his private parts were called Bingley. Yeah. Hers you, were called... Have you, have you any idea what that no, means? No, it comes, it's it's, it's comes from a German word, but I don't know what it is. And hers was called Vava. And they had code names for everything. They, they had sex so much that when he was 60, and they'd been together for 20 years, when he was 60, his doctor told him, You've got to, you can't have sex four times a day in one session, your imperial majesty. You've got to take some days off. You're going to, we, are, we are worried that you're going to die of apoplexy. And so we have the letters on that day. And um, so... The day before, they say, we're going to obey the doctor's orders. We're not going to have sex for at least a day. <laughs> the next day, by about 10 in the morning, she's writing to him saying, like, I'm like a cat crawling the walls, she says. And I, I just ha I want to have you immediately. By 12 o'clock, he's saying, like, I'm thinking of having you. When can I have you? By 1 o'clock, he's saying, I'll be over at 4. <laughs> and, and, so that's, and that's how long it lasted. So... You know, even on the last day when he was about to be assassinated and she was begging him not to go uh, out on the, to ride to the, um, to the parade, um, he was assassinated on the way back. She said, you're going to be assassinated, please don't. He took her on the table, you know, to quieten her. This is, you know, and the doctor said, this is how Romanov's quietened a woman down. So, but he was a very touching character because, because he raised the expectation with his reforms... Of, of, a of a much greater um, liberalisation of Russian society, um, he disappointed that. And we all know that, you know, the most dangerous time for an autocracy is, it, is the moment it starts to reform itself. And so terrorists began to hunt him down. Some of them were the first serial, serial um, uh, suicide bombers. And they, they blew up the Winter Palace, they blew up his train, they shot at him in the street, they got closer and closer and closer and closer. And on the seventh time, they succeeded. And one last point on it, which is very interesting. As he lay blown to pieces um, on his couch in his office in the Winter Palace, um, a little boy was brought in to see his grandfather. And that little boy was the future Nicholas II. Back to those letters. I think there were 3,000 of them just between Alexander and Katya, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, so let's talk about the research a little bit. Did you read all of those letters? No, <laughs> not every single one. But I, I went... I mean, by the way, one of the things about these letters is there are sex acts in these letters that I thought hadn't been invented until about two years ago. <laughs> and if you... By the way... If any of you work out what those are, please Facebook me or tweet me and tell me. Um, I'll send you a free book as a present. Um, uh, but, but the letters were very exciting because, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm joking about the sex, but every correspondence, the, this book is really based on, yes, on the letters, um, on state papers, on ministers' papers. But the most fascinating parts, I think, are these intimate correspondences, of which this is just one. There are about six of them. Peter the, Peter the Great and his wife, um, Catherine the Great and Potemkin, Prince Potemkin, which I wrote a book about, um, Nicholas and Alexander, and so on and so forth. Alexander I and his sister, a very interesting one. But these correspondences are not just private correspondences, because in an autocracy... Everyone close to the body, as they call it in Russia, even today in Putin's... They say the person who's close to the body has power. So the Tsar's hairdresser... In, in, in one case in this book, um, the Tsar's hairdresser becomes a count and the richest man in Russia and the most powerful man in Russia. 
And he's not even Russian. He's actually a Turkish slave boy. So, you know, everyone who's close. So these intimate correspondences are inevitably highly political as well as, as, well as private. And, yeah, and I think that those letters and the many quotes from letters and diaries, it really is what makes this book so fascinating to read because you, you feel that you get so close to the czars. Um, but I, I was wondering, when, when reading the book, this, it must be an enormous work. Just imagine the research. Just, I, I saw a few weeks ago you posted a picture of uh, Katya's letters, the, one of the letters she wrote to Alexander. H- how did you manage to read her handwriting? I mean, it must have been such an enormous work. Well, one of the reasons I didn't read all the letters is because <laughs> I couldn't read them all. Um, you know, they're all... Um, the, the let- these letters, by the way, are in French. But obviously, if they're handwritten in Russian, they're even harder to read. And um, it's a huge challenge. I mean, as I said, some of it is solved by the fact you just can't, you just can't read them. But the interesting thing is, in the Russian archives... Nothing is like any other archive. You, 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 have you worked in the Russian archives before? Luckily, no. Well, the Russian archives are unlike any other archives because in every other archive in London or New York or wherever, everyone is trying to help you to find things. <laughs> every archivist is saying, can I bring you this, can I bring you that? When I started in the Russian archives, doing Catherine the Great, I, um, I remember I arrived and I said, can I have these, the letters of Potemkin and Catherine, the hugely fat... Um, Russian lady behind the thing who, who, and by the way, all the Russian archivists are intermarried with each other. So they're all related to each other. And they're all very pale. They've really spent, they've spent their whole life underground. And, and she said, no, we have no such letters. And I said, well, what about this font number, this thing? And they said, all right then. So she went and brought me the thing. And I sat down on my first, um, on my first day you know, I was sat in this wonderful palace where, where, where some of these archives were underneath this gallery. I sat down and I opened my first box with great excitement on my first day. And suddenly there was this screeching sound and I, something landed on my head. And I reached up and pulled it off. It was a kitten. And I looked up and there was that archiv- archivist woman standing in the gallery and she just waved at me. And she was welcoming me to the archives. So the Russian archives aren't like any other archives. <laughs> but after I wrote that book, I, I, I found myself in a wonderful situation, which, which is over now. But because I'd sort of essentially rehabilitated two very great Russian statesmen, Potemkin and Catherine, who were regarded in most Western histories, she is a sort of nymphomaniac, him as the creator of false villages. Um, I suddenly found myself in great favour with the new regime in Russia of Prime Minister, President, then President Vladimir Putin. And um, he himself supposedly had read the, has read the book and they discussed when George W. Bush, forgive the appalling name dropping here, but when George W. Bush went in about 2000 for his first meeting with Putin, the meeting, remember the meeting where he said, I've looked into his, into his soul and I like what I see. Um, uh, at that meeting, they talked about the Potemkin and George W. Bush told President Putin that he, him and his wife, Laura, the, the, the first lady, had read the love letters to each other back and forth in, in their bedroom in the White House, which I think you'll agree is a terrifying thought. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so because of this, I got access to the Stalin, to the Stalin archives. And when I, was in the, when, I, when I got access to the Stalin archives, suddenly everything changed in the archive. I mean, I had my own room. The archivists were all helping me and advising me, and they were telling me, this is Stalin's handwriting, this is Beria's handwriting, and so on. When I published the book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, which you mentioned... Yeah, and everything changed. Everything changed again. I fell completely from favour, and, um, and I never, never was in favour again. And do you think it will change stuff of this book? Has anything changed? I, I don't know. I don't know, but... But this book is, I didn't, the key thing for me, I didn't try and go in and meet people. And, because when I, went, when I went back to write my, star, my young Stalin book, I went back to the same archive and I said to them, hey guys, I'm back. <laughs> and they all said, we don't know you. Who are you? And I said, like, but you, I was just here two months ago finishing off my, my Stalin book. And they said, no, you, we don't recognize you. We never helped you. So I realized what it was like to feel the cold wind of... 
the of the of the, of the out of being out of favor with the Kremlin. Well, I have a question now of, of great importance, and, and I, I'm very curious, and I'm sure that the colleagues here in the audience are very curious as well. Um, how do you do it? I mean, the, the tremendous research just for one book, but and then. Of course, also the, the work of transforming this enormous research material into hundreds of fascinating pages of literature. And it's not just one book. Um, after 2001, you have published one, two, three, four, five, six um, nonfiction books, uh, among them Jerusalem, the biography, and also two novels, highly acclaimed. And in between writing these books, you have also been an, done BBC series. You write book reviews for the New York Times. You write articles. You travel around the book, like now presenting your books. They are translated to 40 languages. Uh, tomorrow you're going to... Oh, you look so tired now. I'm tomorrow <laughs> you're going to... I'm beginning going... to want... I'm feeling exhausted. I can't remember doing any of this stuff. <laughs> tomorrow you're going to Fredrikstad, Trondheim, and then on Monday he's back again here in Oslo. He will do a lecture uh, opening the Saladin Dagene. And uh, in between all of this, you are attending royal weddings and cocktail parties in London and also raising two children. So do you ever sleep or do you have a twin that you keep locked inside <laughs> in your office back home or do you have hundreds of assistants? How do you do it? I don't have any assistants, really. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I... I I can't remember doing any of those things, actually. <laughs> and I, when I look at these books, I don't really remember writing it. But um, the books are the main thing. And for me, it's all about the work, the, the, the books. It's all about the books. The TV and things like that don't, are, are, are frivolous matters. But I love the history books and the novels, are what I, I'm very proud of. And I put everything into them. And you're right, it, it's, it's a nightmare. When I propose one of these books, like Jerusalem or the Romanovs, or Stalin, um, it's easier. Just put in a paragraph to the publisher and they say, do it. And then I have to start doing it. Then I have a huge crisis every time. When I can't sleep, um, everyone has to calm me down. Um, I, think, I, think, I think I'm not going to do the book. Um, my publisher is in crisis. Um, but then they say it's sold in so many countries, I have to do it, and then I have to do it. <laughs> and it's all very stressful. I mean, this was less stressful than Jerusalem is the most stressful. Because at Jerusalem, I mean, everybody... Everyone cares about Jerusalem. People die for the history of Jerusalem. Everybody said things to me, like my father said to me, if you say King David doesn't exist, I'll, I'll, I'll never speak to you again. My Palestinian <laughs> friend said, if you don't mention the massacre of Dayasin, um, then, then we will never speak to you again. The Armenians said, if you don't call it a genocide, um, you know, we'll, and so on. So everybody told me. By then, I was just a complete wreck. And I was just such a joy to finish that book and move on to the Romanovs, which were more more relaxing, though, of course, then you're bringing, you're bringing hellish people into your household. You know, like if it's Stalin books, you're bringing the, the poison dwarf Yezhov and the torturer Beria. Um, with this, you're bringing the massacre of Nicholas II's children into your house. But what I do is, the way I work is, I do each thing one by one. I don't do everything at the same time. I immerse myself in whatever I'm doing. So with this book, I immerse myself in the fiction of the time, the, the, the poetry of the time, um, memoirs. I do very little else. My whole brain is dreaming Romanov. And the whole art of these books is to put yourself into the head, into the, into the, is to find the empathy to understand each of these people. I mean, obviously, you don't spend much time on minor characters, but big characters like Rasputin, Potemkin, Stalin, Catherine, you know, those people... I spent a lot of time trying to think, you know, how did they think? And also about power. How did it work? If I wanted to see Catherine the Great, or I wanted to see Emperor Paul or Nicholas II, who did I have to see to, see the, to get to see them? And how would I persuade them to do what I wanted to do? Because that's the million-dollar question in every company, in every, in the, if you're talking about the Prime Minister of Norway today or you're talking about Genghis Khan. That's the million-dollar question, is how does it work? How does their court work? And so that's what these books are about. And then I gather all the material, and once I've gathered it all, I go through the whole thing, 
and I keep little note cards, very old-fashioned style. My office is total chaos. And then um, when I finished, I then start to write. And I write in a kind of warlike manner with very loud rock music, rap music. Um, you know, I've got Pitbull and Flowrider booming out. And I'm going like this. No one can interrupt me. When my, when my, if someone brings me in a cup of tea, they, they have very close instructions. They have to move very slowly. Because if I suddenly see them, and I'll jump and have a heart attack. Um, and I just write the whole book from beginning to end without stopping or looking back. So then it's about... Then it's about 500,000 words long. And then I start to edit it. And I cut it down and rewrite large bits and stuff. And then, so, when I, so I've, I've kind of edited it myself. And then, um, then I hand it in. And then once it's done, I move on to the next thing without ever looking back or remembering any of that. So, <laughs> so that's how I do. But the novels are also very important to me because these books are all about power. Even when they're about private life, they're about how power the effect of power on family, on individuals. And by the way, the effect of power is always poisonous and corrosive. And it's one of the themes of all these books, is is how power destroys um, all the the ties of human affection. How betrayal is kind of an inevitable um, effect of, of power being brought into the private sphere. But the novels are all about love. The novels are love stories. And... They're all about private life. They're about the different sorts of love. But they're set in Russia in, in the 20th century, in Stalin's Russia, in Nicholas II's Russia. So that raises the ante of private dilemmas. You know, um, in Soviet Russia, adultery could lead to... Your, you, you, could, you could be arrested, you could be shot. It could, in, it could entangle you in something terrible. So in Soviet, in Soviet Russia, you could die of gossip. You could be killed for gossip, as it were. And so that's the, that's the novels. And I've just finished the third novel of the trilogy. Congratulations. Um, which is exciting. And it's really bizarre because it's, it's very exciting because it's, it, it's a war story. It's set on the plains of southern Russia in 1942. And it's set at a time when the, the Germans were charging across the steppes towards Stalingrad, towards the Caucasus. And everyone at that time, they ran out of petrol and the Soviets ran out of tanks. So they suddenly used cavalry again. So it's all on horseback. So it's a sort of western set on the eastern front. I'm sure it will be translated to Norwegian as well, that the editor is here today. Um, Well, let's go back a little bit in time, or actually forward, because it, it wasn't given from the beginning that you would become a famous writer of biographies of Stalin and the Tsars and so on. And you did study history at Cambridge, but in your own words, you never found the library. And then you had (laughs) a career as a New York investment banker. And then a friend recalls he was pretty bloody useless, but he talked a good talk, wore wore the clothes, and would sit with his foot on the chairman's desk. (laughs) Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, that was true. So that was a change of career, and then yeah. you had the then the Soviet Union broke up, and then uh, you went. You didn't go to, to Moscow or St. Petersburg like everyone else. You went to Tbilisi, Samarkand, Baku, to Estonia. You actually, for a period, you were a war correspondent. And I found another very nice quote. Uh, Once, in 1993, when handed a gun in the war between Armenians and Azerbaijanis in the former Soviet province of Nagorno-Karabakh, he started to fire enthusiastically. While presumably not everyone found stories of such behavior enchanting, he was a hit with the ladies. (laughs) 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 So that was... uh, well, your life before you got married, had children, and started writing these um, very impressive books. I, I found it very hard to concentrate in those days, <laughs> and I and I. But I did have a very interesting time. I mean, I mean, after after Cambridge, I went. I became an investment banker, but partly because my family had been a bank was a banking family traditionally. So I felt I should sort of try and be a banker, and I I failed absolutely in that attempt. Um, I was an absolutely hopeless banker. I once even lost some huge sum of money because I, I went. I, I sent it off to someone, but I sent sent it to the wrong number. 
And it was like, and, they, and, I'll, and people sort of started ringing. When I got back to the, my, 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 um, my flat at about three in the morning, the phones were all ringing. And they said, like, we've lost 300 million pounds. Um, you've got to find it. And so um, I realized it wasn't really, I wasn't really cut out for this business. So, so then I was fascinated to go, well, then the Soviet Union started to break up. And I wanted, I mean, a bit like you and your, your adventures, um, you know, this was the greatest event of my lifetime, and I wanted to see it happen. And all my life I'd read Russian and Soviet history. So I wanted to go there. And so I bought, instead of going to Moscow, as you said, I, I didn't have a job with The Times or Reuters or CNN or whatever. So I just phoned up a bed and breakfast company. In, I lived in New York then, so I phoned up a bed and breakfast company in New York, and I said, you know, I want to go and stay with families in all these places, like Tbilisi and Baku, as you said. And they said, we've never sent anybody to those places. Um, we only send people to St. Petersburg and Moscow, but we can, we will try and arrange it. So I went to these places, and as soon as I arrived in any of these countries, civil war and coup d'etats broke out instantly, and I was the only person there... <laughs> And I immediately said to my family, who I was staying with, I'm not really here to stay with you. I want to go to meet the president. I want to meet the chief of the rebels. I want to meet all these things. And to, as you know from your adventures, these are very strange places, they aren't are they? They are very strange, very fascinating, yeah. and very hospitable as well. Yes. So and you never have a dull moment. You never have a dull moment. So immediately I was taken up by the president. And I remember once with the president, Gansak Herdia, who you probably have written about, um, he, he, was a, he was a crazy Shakespearean professor who became first president and dissident and KGB stooge who became the first freely elected president of Georgia. And he welcomed me into his palace and I sat with him while he was gradually besieged by the rebels in the palace. And he... Um, and I remember he said to me, like, I'm going to go and speak to my people from the balcony and uh, I'm going to address them. And I said... Mr. President, while you're there, can I, can I sit at your desk and phone my mum from your satellite phone? Because it's the only phone that works in the whole city, and my mum will be worried about me. So I rang my mother, and I said, Hi, Mum, it's Simon. I'm, 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 um... She said, Where the hell are you? Are you in Georgia? You can't be in Georgia. There's a civil war going on there. Come, where are you? I said, like, I'm right in the middle of it. I said, I'm with, I'm with the president. We're besieged in his palace. She said, oh, my God. Um, she said, you've got to get out of there. What's going on? Then she said, wait, what's that? And the president was on the balcony. He started to speak, screaming in, in saliva-flecked um, oratory to his, to his thousands of screaming followers. And he was screaming. She said, like, that sounds like Hitler in the background. Where the hell are you? And I said, well, it's, he's not Hitler, but he's a local dictator. He's just addressing his um, followers. Anyway, it was a crazy time. And that's how I got started in writing about about this Russia and the Russian Empire. Um, but where, you mentioned your mom, and on your mother's side of the family, they have roots in, in Lithuania and Russia. Mm. Is that where your fascination from Russia comes from? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, one of my Montefiore ancestors, Moses Montefiore, had actually been, and he's in this book because he visited Nicholas I to intercede for the Jewish... He was a, he was a fascinating character, Moses Montefiore. He was... A sort of George, like a sort of George Soros of the 19th century, if you can imagine that. He was um, a very wealthy um, a sort of banker tycoon who was friends with Queen Victoria, who was brother-in-law of the Rothschild, uh, the head of the House of Rothschild. And, but he was very brave, and he travelled the world to intercede for Jews, and they were particularly persecuted by the Romanovs, for whom anti-Semitism became a sort of, increasingly became a sort of fetish, and one of the themes of this book is the relationship between the Jews and the House of Romanov and the Russian state. And for no reason at all, the Romanovs blamed much of the ills of the modern world, increasingly, right up to Nicholas II, who was the most anti-Semitic of all of them. They blamed the Jews for, for everything that... They, they, they regarded the Jews as symbols of the modern world, uh, democracy, the, the, the stock market, the newspapers... Liberalism, all of these things they called Jewish. And, um, and in fact, even in captivity, Nicholas II was still reading to his children the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is that famous czarist, in fact, a forgery, um, uh, anti-Semitic forgery. So he went to visit, so Moses Montefiore went to visit Nicholas I. And Nicholas I said, said to him, 
rather rudely, I think. He said, if all the Jews were like you, we'd treat them better, um, which is a kind of mixed compliment. Um, <laughs> I think you'll agree. But anyway, so there was that. But on the other hand, my mother's family, so he was mixing with the kind of czars, and my mother's family, meanwhile, were in the shtetls of Poland, Lithuania, and Russia. And... Um, they escaped after the various revolutions, all the, all the pogroms. And one of the ones from Lithuania, who were called Jaffe, they bought tickets from Lithuania, from Vilnius, <clears throat> to America in 1904, after all, the, after all the pogroms, the famous pogroms of 1903, 1904. And they bought tickets, and they got on the boat, which was, of course, run by kind of vicious people smugglers. And they, after about a day or two, they said, we've arrived in New York. And my, my, my relation, my, descent, my grandfather and my great-grandfather said, who was called Max Jaffe, he said, but we bought tickets for New York. This can't be New York. We, you know, we've only been at sea for about three days. And they said, sorry, mate, look at your tickets. And they looked at the tickets. They said, it says New York. They said, no, it says New Cork. <laughs> and it, this, is, this is not an apocryphal story. This is exactly what happened. They were put off the boat in Ireland, in Cork. And they settled in Ireland in 1904, where there was a pogrom against them by Irish peasants. And then they moved to Newcastle, to Manchester, to London. And that's how, that's how I come to be. So, yes, I was very fascinated with Russian history because of these two, these two antecedents. <laughs> the coincidences of these, history. You're getting more on these answers than you bargained for, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, we are doing very well. Um, so it's uh, now it's 100 years since the Russian Revolution. Today is the birthday of Mikhail Gorbachev, and um, so so many things have changed also in Russia the last 25, 26 years, and I think maybe also how the Russian view the Tsars. Uh, now there is a movie in the making, you probably heard of it, by Alexei Uchitel. It's a, a movie about the Nicholas II and the love story with the ballerina Matilda. And uh, as you know, um, Nicholas II, he was canonized by the Orthodox Church in the year 2000. And now, uh, surrounding this movie, there are so many controversies. And um, I found this... Uh, interview with one of the persons who are really against this movie says, you can't touch saints, you can't show them having sex, because that offends the feeling of believers, Natalia Poklonskaya argues. Her office, by the way, is decorated with portraits of icons of the last czar. So how, um, how has it changed, the view of the czars, the last 25 years, with Putin behind the wheel? Well, in 2000, Nicholas and Alexandra were canonized, as you say. And so there's this, this controversy which you describe is, is, is interesting um, for two reasons. I mean, first of all, because the Orthodox Church is trying to insist that you cannot portray saints, Saint, Saint Nicholas II and Alexandra, as normal human beings. And their objection is that a saint could only be a virgin at his marriage. So... The second, the second interesting thing is that the film was made and the church objects. In other words, the Kremlin actually has, has, not in, has not imposed any view on this subject, on this particular subject, which is interesting. On another subject, which is also very relevant, as you know, the family were, were, were slaughtered in, in the 17th of July, 1918. And in 1998, Boris Yeltsin buried most of the family um, in, in, the Peter, in, in, the, in, the fa- in the family um, crypt tomb, the family tomb. But two of the bodies were missing, Alexei and Maria, the, the Grand Duchess Maria. And in, 19, in 2007, they found these bodies. And since then, there's been a huge um, row about whether these bodies are, in fact, the bodies of the missing children of Nicholas II, expanded by the church, that now claims ownership over the whole Romanov dynasty uh, as to whether the bones of Nicholas II, buried by Boris Yeltsin, are indeed Nicholas II. Last year, uh, about a year ago, the Kremlin, um, the, the security services and the church agreed to exhume 
all the bodies and to examine the two the fragments of bones of the two bodies that, that were found later to decide what to do with these bodies. Um, and that is going on now. We have no results yet. And we're in the fascinating situation of wondering what is going to happen. Is there going to be a huge ceremonial burial of the last two members of the family? And the wider question is one that you're really touching on here is, it's now 100 years since... 1917. Next year will be 100 years since the murder of the family. How will Boris, how will um, Vladimir Putin um, reconcile these two strands of Russian history? And that is the million dollar question. He himself is very interested. He's not a great intellectual like Stalin was, who was always reading, but he does read biographies of czars. He's very interested in biographies of czars. And he has his favourites amongst them, and he has his villains amongst them. And when he talks about himself, he talks about it. He's, he's nicknamed by his, by his entourage, by the way, the Tsar, obviously. Um, he's been in power for 17 years already. Um, he, his view of Russian history, by the way, which is very interesting, is totally unideological. He doesn't differentiate between general secretaries of the Communist Party and emperors and Tsars. He just looks at success in the promoting of the interests of the Russian state. And therefore, the czars he admires are the two greats, you know, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, Alexander I, Nicholas I. He admires Alexander III because he stopped ref liberal reforms of his father. And he, and he identifies with that, just as he stopped the liberal reforms of Yeltsin. And the czars he most... Uh, and then, of course, the other great czar, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and Stalin. That, that's that, you know, undeniably the most successful ruler Russia's ever had, at a terrible cost. And the, the czars he despises are Gorbachev, whose birthday it is today, <laughs> Gorbachev and Nicholas II. So an interesting... That's his view. So that's very interesting. And... You really, he, he, look, he looks at Gorbachev and Nicholas II with contempt because they were the czars that abdicated to leave Russia in chaos. And so that's his view. His view of Russian history is that he wants to emulate. I mean, of course, like every member of the Romanov family, like, every, like Stalin himself, he wants to be Peter the Great. He wants to be the Peter the Great of our times. That's a hell of an ask. Um, that's a hell of an ask, but... But they all want to be that. So he has probably studied this book very well already. So, as mentioned, it's 100 years now since the Russian Revolution. Do you see any parallels between the dramatic events that took place 100 years ago and what is happening today with Donald Trump, Brexit, the war, struggle for power in Syria, the rise of populism... Well, all over Europe. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I have built this interview, so we, the questions will be slightly more, more difficult. As we go. <laughs> we um, are getting close to the end now. Purportedly, <laughs> purportedly, if you look at the people who say, this is, this is, we have a revolution now like 1917, or who say, we have a revolution, like, we, have a, we have a fascist movement now like the 1930s. On the face of it, both of these things are simplistic and naive. After all, we are talking about Brexit, Trump, um, maybe whatever happens in Holland and France. These are, order, these are actually elections chosen by people in democracies with orderly, fairly orderly elections, um, uh, which, which, which have taken place, and power has been handed over in an orderly democratic way. And after all, the handover of power is the essential test of a system stability. So on the face of it, perhaps we're overreacting. But, yes, of course, there are parallels. Um, it, there are parallels with Trump and, and Putin's. The one thing they share... They have great differences, which we'll come to in a second, but the one thing they share is... The, well, one thing, one basic thing, is that they believe that power overrules truth on all occasions. And that they have in common greatly... Um, with the totalitarian, the totalitarian regimes of the middle of the century. And those regimes were really invented by Vladimir Lenin, who really understood the alchemy of what I call the alchemy of power. 
and how power works. Um, the difference is that Lenin was a fanatical Marxist, a total believer in Marxism, and so was Stalin. So they had an ideological framework that they wished to follow. But that said, they believed that any means justified the any means to justify any means were justified to reach their ends, and that in power politics, any method was justified to destroy, to eliminate, to um, discredit, to humiliate your opponents, and no opposition could be tolerated. Now, that view um, is, is we see being replayed now even in the democracy of America, in an alarming fashion by the, by, by, by the, the Trump um, White House. They also advocated, um, or rather they didn't advocate, they practiced the rule of autocracy. Um, Lenin didn't believe he was an autocrat. Stalin would have understood that he was an autocrat. And he promoted one-man rule himself as a sort of red czar. I think the Americans... I think the Americans have their first American czar in Donald Trump. I think he wants to be an, an American czar. And I think um, then when you look at foreign affairs as well, you see that there, there, is a great, there are great parallels. Um, Donald Trump wants to, wants, to, wants to take part in international affairs without rules. He wants to scrap the rules that have been in place really since 1945, 40, 43 really. And he wants to, to um, promote America without these rules. President Putin has specialized until now in, um, in, in testing those rules and pushing back against those rules as much as possible. I believe that in this American election, President Putin and his security services had no idea that Donald Trump was going to win. I think my theory is that they wanted... Hillary Clinton, they expected Hillary Clinton to win. After all, the Russians presume that the establishment can fix everything in the West. They don't understand that democracy is actually, really is a democracy. They don't believe it really works like that. They think it's all fixed. As Stalin himself said in one of his witty, rather terrifying comments, he says, it doesn't matter what votes are cast. All that matters is who counts them. And, um, and so that's what that, all the Russians believe, that everything is corrupt in our systems. And they believe they're just corrupt. They're just pointing out their weaknesses and exposing their weaknesses. So I think that they thought they'd weaken the system with Donald Trump, back Donald Trump, fiddle around with the election, and Hillary Clinton would just about win, but be fatally damaged. I believe they were very surprised when Donald Trump won, and they have reason to be alarmed by this. Initially, they celebrated it. They followed it up with a, with, a, with an intelligence coup that is unique, which is to divide an American president from his intelligence services in a feud, which is probably the greatest success that the, that the Russian intelligence services ever had. But I believe they succeeded too well with Donald Trump. And you can see something of this in the fact that actually they've stopped celebrating. And as Donald <laughs> Trump leans towards Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin is moving back slowly. And there's a reason for this. Vladimir Putin has has won enormous success by testing the limits of our rule-based system in the West. If Donald Trump is also going to test these limits and tear up the rules, then they're going to go head-to-head -head with each other. And we'll be back to a Cold War situation, which, as we, as we know from the Reagan period, that was how Russia was bankrupted, by competing head-to-head -head in, a, in, a, in, a, in a direct race with America they would never win. Their economy is absolutely tiny. And, and also, you know, they are now worried. Like, what are they going to get with Donald Trump? I predict there will be a great bromance with Donald Trump. There will be. When they finally meet, after Donald Trump will lean forward, Donald, Vladimir Putin will lean back. <laughs> like a, like a sort of, he'll, Donald Trump will be like a sort of overexcited, fresh-faced boy on his first date with a very beautiful Russian girl. He'll be leaning forward, waiting to put it, pour her, but she'll step back gradually, gradually, tempt him to lean forward further. And then finally, they'll meet. There'll be a great moment of blossoming romance. And then they'll find out that they have nothing in common. Their interests, <laughs> their interests are totally opposed. And then we'll be faced with the very alarming prospect of two incredibly macho, 
control, control freaks um, with very thin skins who are used to always getting their way in all things, who each have a thousand nuclear warheads. And that is a terrifying prospect. It's a terrifying prospect to end, a good the place to, end. to end the conversation. It all ends yes. there. I, I see in the leader of the House of Literature, I might be paranoid, but I think he is signaling yes. that we should end now. So I'll just sneak in one last question. Um, I've spent the day we, reading oh interviews, and uh, in an interview in 2007, you listed um, that... Well, you had just finished a book with, on Stalin, and you listed that you're working on a book on Jerusalem. You were writing the novel Sashenka, and you also mentioned this book about the Romanovs. So all of these books, they are now here. So I wonder, do you have a long-term plan that you follow? What can we look forward to? I have no plan whatsoever. <laughs> I don't believe you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> You have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Litteraturhuset. Music by Apotek. <laughs>